Welcome to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series, I'm exploring the Lancashire Textile Gallery, a new online resource that brings together objects and artefacts held by museums, archives and manufacturers from across the county. I'll be speaking to curators, artists, enthusiasts and researchers about everything from the exquisitely detailed medieval embroidery known as Opus Anglicanum to costumes worn by visitors to Blackpool's Pleasure Beach in the 1930s. To kick us off, I wanted to get right to the heart of Lancashire's textile heritage. So I talked to Philip Butler and Heather Davis from Lancashire County Museum Service about some resplendent print works, dye and sample books that they have in the Lancashire Textile Industry Collection. Stay tuned to hear us discuss Lancashire's historic mills, the dangers of colour creation in the past, and the impact of colonialism on British textiles and colours. Hi Amber, I'm Philip Butler and I have the privilege of being a curator here at Lancashire County Museum Service. Part of Lancashire County Council, but the main collection that we care for in the textile field is the Lancashire Textile Industry Collection. It's a collection that's recognised by the Arts Council as being of national significance, potentially even wider international significance, could we say, um, and is, uh, by the, as the name suggests, focused on this county of Lancashire, because that's where the processing of cotton became the hotbed and the seat of the Industrial Revolution. So that's where our collections lie, and interpreting them, as I say, is a privilege. Hi, Amber. I'm, uh, I'm Heather Davis. I'm the Conservation and Collection manager for Lancashire Museum Service. Uh, my role is, uh, though I trained initially in archaeology and art history, I also subsequently trained as a specialist painting conservator. So uh, I'm one of those people that is occasionally seen in front of a, a painting doing lots of sort of very minuscule work. However, in my wider role, I'm responsible for our collections and I think, as Philip indicated, uh, so many of our collections across Lancashire, even those in great houses or in our agricultural, all link in to the textile industries on so many different levels. So true. And I think that's why for anybody who's a scholar or you know, has an interest in textiles, Lancashire is just such a fantastic place to visit, it really is. Now Philip, as a curator across the whole of Lancashire County Council, you come into contact with a huge number of collections and important historic sites, and I'd love to talk about a couple of these which really highlight the rich textile heritage of the area. Now firstly, can you tell me a bit about Helmshaw Mill? Yes, the, the site at Helmshaw we regard as as part, if you like, of the collection that we have of the Lancashire textile industry. So a fascinating site that dates back to the first woolen fulling mill on that site of 1789, built by William Turner. Um, but very quickly in the early part of the 19th century, a cotton processing mill was built next door to it. And even though that may have had a number of incarnations from 1820 until sadly being 
burned to the ground in 1850. Its subsequent rebuild is the visitor attraction now at Helmshaw Mills. We run it as Lancashire County Council as a museum. It's open to the public um, from Easter through to October each year. Um, this year, uh, coming year 2023, I think we're looking to open on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So it gives you plenty of opportunity for visits. Um, at the mills, we have, as I say, the woolen fulling mill from 1789, but also a cotton spinning mill. It's condenser cotton, which is the reprocessed uh, cotton waste from other mills, which was put together and remixed and then re-spun into yarn ready for use elsewhere in the industry. And we have a, a spinning floor still fully operational. Um, the only place where you can see this type of spinning machine in its original location here in Lancashire. It's so fantastic. I love visiting Helmshaw. I highly, highly recommend anyone who's listening to book a visit as soon as you possibly can. It's such an incredible space. And could you also tell me a bit about Queen Street Mill? Well, um, running as a, a sister museum or sister attraction, certainly to Helmshaw, we have Queen Street Mill in Harlsyke, just out on the hill outside Burnley. Uh, and this is your typical weaving shed. So this is a large space encased with just a perimeter wall uh, and a what's called a north light roof. So a sawtooth roof with half glazing and half tiling to allow as much natural light through as possible. And then in this space, there were originally over 900 Lancashire looms working away, weaving plain calico. Currently we have that space a little bit divided. So we now have a weaving shed of around 300 looms. So it's still a very sizable space. Um, and on site, we have the original working Lancashire boilers and steam engine, which power the line shafts to run the looms. So it's the only place where you can get steam driven uh, cotton calico that's been woven on machines that were actually first designed in the 1830s, perfected around 1840. And then the ones that we have at Queen Street were actually built in the early 1890s when the mill opened and they're still running today. Amazing. Again, so, so, so fascinating and really gives a sense of that huge element of that industrial heritage in Lancashire that we, we don't see so much on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. So such an important place. Now, as a curator in Lancashire, you of course have no end of amazing textiles to choose from, but one of the real textile treasures that you have is your sample books and especially the dye sample books. Can you please tell me a bit about some of these? Yes, well, we have a collection, a wide collection um, of both archive and library books within our Lancashire textile industry collection. And 
within that is a small collection of nine diaries and notebooks from the early 19th century from the um, Calico printing companies around the Rossendale Valley and Burnley. And these books are fascinating detail, not only of samples of, of, of Calico that's been printed, but also of the dyes that were used, how those dyes were made, and then fascinatingly, the, the method that was used to fix those dyes to the calico um, to, to, so that they became a, a product uh, with some sort of long lasting color fastness that could be brought to market. The way the diary books as they are, are laid out, you can see that the characters involved were actually applying scientific rigor to experiments that they were doing in the factory, in the um, print works, to see what methods worked and what methods didn't, and to see how certain colors were applied and made fast, and how others just, no matter what they did, didn't work at all. So you get the, the triumphs and the failures written down. Lovely. That's lovely. Thank you. Um, can you please describe some of these sample books in detail? Okay, um, well, firstly, they are quite small and unassuming. They're, they're not grand tomes by any means, and they're not in hard, bound, hard leather bound um, ledgers that are built to last on heavy paper. They are notebooks and diaries, and they're the sort of notebooks and diaries that people at the print works were able to get hold of in the 1820s. So some of them are suffering a bit. They've lived also, certainly whilst being made, in the pockets and on the uh, workbenches of these um, embryonic chemists um, through their working life. They were used as reference points for future dyes and future um, attempts to synthesize different colors, to establish um, different color fastness and, and work with slightly different weightings of, of cotton, etc. Um, they, they, as a result, have a striking richness of colors on some pages and some incredibly drab, ordinary, but obviously uh, degraded samples on other pages samples where the color fastness just wasn't wasn't there so you can see the successes and the failures which is nice within these within these books as they've been protected from light they're in a, a, a super super condition in terms of the fabric swatches but what's really impressive is that the description of the method used is alongside each of the swatches. So you can lose yourself in some of the um, descriptions of how these things were put together. I'll just I'll just read one out that I transcribed because they are in a, a Cyrillic hand so that they are in uh, sorry cursive hand so they are uh, sometimes a little bit difficult to um, establish but 
There's one here from September 1825, so one of the early ones. And it's talking about a cambric, which is a type of cotton fabric. Um, it would be the number one cambric printed by cylinder. So this shows that we were already at a stage where roller printing had been established within the print works. This was first patented and invented and patented in Lancashire, near Preston actually, at a print works uh, at Higher Walton in the 1780s. So it was a new technology. It was taking over from block printing, but you can see by looking at these notebooks, it wasn't exclusively used by any means. So some of these will start saying printed by cylinder as this one does. Others will start saying printed by the block, meaning they were block printed. The examples that we have of block printing, perversely, um, tend to be more modern in appearance than those that were embracing the new technology of roller or cylinder printing. They tended to be more your floral approaches with um, quite elaborate um, leaf and flower patterns on them. And the repeat pattern could be a little bit uh, more accurate because it was on a roller and could be produced in, in greater lengths. But some of the smaller block print uh, examples that are in these books with fantastic overprinting in not only a two color machine, but they had up to five and six color machines. Um, they were able to go to town with the design of it. And um, as I say, they're so modern in appearance that you would put them in the early to mid 20th century rather than 200 years ago in, in 1825. It was that scientific research and that attention to detail. Um, some of the recipes look really quite basic, but they've had a huge degree of research and tried and tested methods to get any of these colours. And often we may think uh, pigments come from a single source, um, we don't appreciate the level of detail and hue and tone that you can get from very minor changes in, in, in some of these recipes. Um, and on the grounds they were working with quite ba basic um, apparatus, the results they've produced are really quite spectacular. What an amazing like record of these experiments and sort of, you know, progressions and issues that might have come up. Can you tell me about the this history of the industry in Lancashire of dyeing and some of the companies that are featured in the sample books? Yes. Um, well, as I say, our sample books are fairly restricted. Uh, I think we cover the fantastic names of the of the print works. We have the Rose Grove print works, the Love Clough print works, um, and another print works at Catterall. But within Lancashire, um, there's a history going right back to the mid 18th century of um, dye works and calico dyeing beginning to be used within the uh, within the county. Um, and this was all because, of course, there was an existing and very fashionable market 
in Indian dyed cottons. And that's where the word calico comes from. We, looking at, it's very easy to think that it was just the innovation of the Lancashire inventors. Um, it was the accessibility to markets, the, the port of Liverpool, the, um, the trading in Manchester through the Royal Exchange, all of these elements were, were seen as critical to the development of the cotton industry in Lancashire. But what was also critical is that there were massive product uh, profits to be made if Lancashire entrepreneurs could muscle in on what previously was just a, an Indian produced good. And in so doing, they made fortunes for so many of the uh, recognizable Lancashire uh, families uh, in cotton that we know of today. Well, I think one of the things that we often forget is the fact that the pre the mid 19th century, the range of colors that most people were wearing were really quite drab. They were grays, they were the getting color light fastness became really challenging. Um, and um, if one went back to the really early period, uh, something like uh, the the Roman emperors, they used to uh, produce, used to wear purple, the imperial purple. Now that was made by a very natural source, but good grief, it was absolutely foul to produce. Uh, you needed to use shellfish, which were left out to putrefy in the sun and then crushed to produce a tiny gram of dye, which the, the wool would then be dyed and was worth its weight in gold. Um, and many ancient um, uh, writers mention the fact that things like the uh, imperial purple could only be produced at workshops that were far away from habitation because of the smell. And it was unfortunately similar in the 19th century. The development and the innovation that so many uh, British textile manufacturers and inventors brought to bear in the mid 19th century ca came at a cost um, and probably uh, sort of, let me think, probably sort of Indian, uh, Indian, Indian or Turkey red was one of, a, one of the very good examples. It's, uh, it was a, um, a pigment that was traditionally made uh, from the, uh, the root of the madder plant but it normally produced 
about 20 different processes, many of which used um, different types of potash, ammonia, um, and uh, especially sheep's dung and blood seem to have been really popular. And certainly in our recipes, recipe books, it does mention, mention dung, though in some of the other recipe books, it's really specific. It has to be, has to be uh, sh sheep's dung. The other one, which was a very popular color, is, uh, is indigo. And uh, indigo, um, the sort of synthetic format, uh, its main problem was the fact that the, the mordant, which was used to attach the pigment to the fabric, uh, was incredibly polluting. The, uh, the, initial, the initial colors, uh, color, uh, had, to be, uh, had to be created using concentrated ammonia. And then just to make it really good, uh, it was then produced, there was a second washing, which was undertaken in sulfuric acid. Um, and these byproducts were actually then just wa washed into the local uh, water course. And in the 1850s, there were a number of uh, um, uh, cases against textile uh, dyeing companies for polluting the River Ribble. Um, and this was, um, in, in several cases, they were actually fined to a point of being, of, of being shut down. For the workers with indigo, the greatest chance was that you would be, um, you would be blinded uh, by the use of sulfuric acid, or you would suffer quite serious lung damage to, uh, by, by in, um, inhaling the ammonia fumes. That's just a couple. If we, uh, I will doubtless come back and, and mention a few more. Yep. Yes, we do see some Prussian blue, but it's given a number of names. Uh, there is a, 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 a book called the Bradford Color Index, which was, uh, which was produced. And uh, it, can, it consists of the recipes for well over a thousand different colors. And Prussian blue, which was actually produced by accident, it was a... Um, it was a color that the um, the artist was actually looking to produce a, a, a red color, but accidentally his red color got um, got uh, contaminated with uh, with some blood, and that produced the resulted in Prussian blue. But what is really interesting with the Prussian blue is that for painting conservators, it's wonderful. It gives a very key date of 1704. Uh, when it was discovered. And if you see paintings after, um, yeah, it's a, it, if you see that Prussian blue in a painting, you know it has to be post-1704. Uh, but the very early paintings, including Prussian blue, generally were portraits of women wearing beautiful dresses that were of Prussian blue. And it was very much art uh, sort of following textiles in the fact that this was this wonderful new color um, that then would be then would be then would be sort of um, displayed in art. Probably many of your listeners may know Gainsborough's painting, The Blue Boy. 
very famous. And that was, uh, again, he's wearing Prussian blue and it's painted in Prussian blue. Um, again, a sign of people of wealth having, uh, having access to these early colours. Absolutely fascinating. And it is such a visceral industry, isn't it? And you really get that sense from those ingredients lists. You mentioned blood, dung, ammonia. It's just, oh, it really, you know, really sort of conjures up a, an image of what it would have been like. Now, you mentioned some of the dangers um, inherent in these industries as well. And I know that green is really heavily associated with you know, some horrendous industrial, um, you know, illnesses and, and injuries throughout the 19th century. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, I mean, I mean, green is often, I'm Irish, so green is often considered to be a lucky colour. Um, certainly in the 19th century, it wasn't, though the first really sort of true uh, deep greens that were produced, that weren't produced of, of sort of organic substances, um, was a sort, of a, a sort of a viridian green. And that dated, uh, there's a sort of, there is a um, address in a museum collection from 1778. And the European society and British society seem to have absolutely taken on board that, that green was the color to have. The downside was that it contained arsenic. But this, uh, this uh, green was used in carpets, on wallpapers, children's toys, book covers, but the most popular was ladies' dresses and gloves. Um, and um, it was also mixed with white lead just to give it added extra, extra strength. But because of the arsenic, if it hadn't been properly fixed in the dyeing process, the arsenic would produce ulcers on the skin causing sores and scabs and hair loss. And if you wore it for a considerable period of time, uh, it would eventually uh, lead to uh, liver and kidney failure. But the public loved this color. And they, because they were so used to have arsenic in their own home uh, during the Victorian period, they more or less ignored the, the dangers and carried on. And even in the, uh, the um, in the papers in the 18, late 1850s and 60s, major papers and um, Illustrated London News, Punch, produced cartoons where they had ladies in green dresses as skeletons, uh, highlighting just how dangerous these, this, this colour was. Um, and it wasn't until 1895 that regulations were finally put in place to protect workers using arsenic um, and uh, dipping the uh, dipping the uh, materials and fabrics into this substance to produce this wonderful colour. So beauty comes at a cost. It's just remarkable, isn't it? It's so incredible. I mean, I'm wearing green today, and I'm you know very pleased that um, it's a lot safer to do so uh, at this period in the 21st century. So much interesting history is bound up in these dye sample books. We've got this, in, you know, information on the ingredients, the uh, amazing colours that are being produced because they're kept in books. We can, of course, see them at their original brightness, most of them, these absolutely gorgeous colours. Philip, where can people see these sample books? Well, currently they are um, within our reference library. Um, we keep that as, as part of the Lancashire textile industry collection 
Uh, it's actually housed over at our mill at Queen Street, um, the weaving mill. Um, so by appointment, though these books can be used, but obviously they are now 200 years old. Um, the earliest book we have here is dated 1824. So it will be celebrating its 200th anniversary next year. And um, as you say, it's only because they are in enclosed books and uh, samples haven't been exposed to any light at all that they are um, preserved in the way that they are. So they're available for research um, by appointment, but we are going to be putting two on display for limited period of time and with uh, controlled light levels in the new Gillows Gallery at uh, the Judges Lodgings Museum in Lancaster. Um, this gallery is going to celebrate not only the wonderful collection of Gillows furniture that we have at the Georgian Townhouse in Lancaster, but also the, um, the colonial stories that go along with it. A lot of the dyes that we're talking about and the colour pigments were derived from plants that were sourced from tropical climes and had only been discovered because of our colonial activities across the world. And companies like the East India Company were controlling um, the supply of all of this up until the uh, late 18th century. So it was at this point that the markets became open and that the import and the the materials are, are not necessarily what you would imagine. They're not wonderful seed pods containing liquid pigment ready to, to put straight onto your fabric. They were things like logwood, which is the hardest, densest lump of wood that you can possibly imagine. Um, the traders on the ships were actually bringing logwood back as ballast because they were returning from the Americas up to um, the UK with lighter cargoes. So they needed to make sure that their ships were ballasted with some, some weighty products. But it turned out that logwood is the source for a wonderful permanent black prior to any synthetized dyes um, that, that could be fixed and, and used on the materials for calico printing. So things like that um, were all part of the trade that we developed from the colonial side, as well as the hardwoods that were then put into the wonderful furniture that Gillows produced. So that gallery will be open from um, late June next year, uh, this year, sorry. Um, and you can go up to Judge's Lodgings to see two of the wonderful notebooks of Richard Comstive uh, on display. Um, I wasn't the curator who selected the actual pages, but um, the correct curator that has has assured me that they're the pages with some excellent uh, fabric samples on display. So you will be able to see the richness of the colours after 200 years. I was keen to explore more about these colonial links. So I spoke to the artist Madhu Mani Patruni, who's working on a commission for the Lancashire Textile Gallery. 
Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak about my work. Uh, I'm Madhu, I'm a visual artist uh, based in Peterborough. Uh, I'm originally from South India and moved to the UK 25 years ago. Um, and initially I pursued a career in technology, but all the while I practiced drawing and painting. After a career break, I pursued a degree in creative technology, so I, I use um, algorithms in my work as well. But more recently, I've been working in textiles, uh, especially uh, drawing on the textile tradition of India and also exploring colonial histories through the fabrics. Now, your work spans many disciplines. And before we talk about your work for the Lancashire Textile Gallery, I'd love to hear about some of your other textile-based pieces. Can you tell me about your work creating cantha cloths? This is one of my favourite areas to speak about. Kantha uh, is actually a Bengali folk textile tradition. It's rooted in both in India and Bangladesh as well. Um, Kanta stitch is mainly used to kind of bring together used old saris, uh, many layers of them to form quilts. And often a simple running stitch is used for this purpose and also to explore a lot of folk motifs. And um, I've been using this along with handloom cloth in my uh, recent work. Uh, and one of the first uh, pieces that I created was for a commission. Um, this was for City Culture Peterborough, um, where I met uh, women of colour from all walks of life and, uh, and uh, different religious backgrounds and cultural backgrounds, for example, um, from Pakistan, India, Nigeria as well. We sat together over a cup of chai and food and uh, we've talked about our lived experiences of coming to U uh, UK and how it's been. And uh, while we were talking, chatting, we also drew uh, hand outlines and um, henna patterns on them. Uh, and these were later on used uh, to create a kantha um, textile. Um, so the hand outlines represented the women that were involved in this project. And uh, the motifs uh, were also used to signify their stories and their lived experiences. And a set of proposals were offered to the city culture following this um, project. And over last summer, um, I also worked with uh, Portico Library in Manchester. I created um, a Kantha scroll um, using the running Kantha stitch along uh, with handloom textile. Um, this was responding to the Portico Library uh, and the book collection in there. And I felt Portico Library, the impression I had was it was a really male space. And I found the story of a female soldier called Hannah Snell who traveled to India uh, three centuries ago, three centuries ago, yes. And I was really excited to find out about this journey that she had to dress up as a man to travel uh, and she actually went as a soldier to fight against the French. Um, um, she, her story is well published, uh, but I wanted to find out about the circumstances of the travel, why she chose to go to India. And it was a very touching story. At the same time, I discovered the shared histories of, uh, of uh, Britain and India at this time. And um, 
and this uh, work was exhibited at Portico Library last year along with my South Asian artist group called DDGs. What is it that draws you to Stitch in your work? What draws me to Stitch is its calming and meditative quality. I find it very forgiving material as well. So often when I make mistakes, I can remove the stitches and repair. And, uh, and especially um, Kanta Stitch allows me to work creatively without having the ideas of perfection crippling me. Um, actually, a couple of years ago, I went through a really difficult time. Uh, I lost my dad during COVID lockdown and, uh, and I couldn't be with my family in India. And I had to carry on uh, as my children were homeschooling and we were all in lockdown and uh, and I took up to stitching then. It kind of offered me a respite space, a space to actually process my grief. And uh, it actually, I think, saved me in many ways through this really difficult time. So I still carry on. It's a daily practice that I do. I have a stitch, a running stitch, something really simple on the go every day that I use it for meditative and also to bring my thoughts together. What are the inspirations for your work? Um, for I draw a lot of inspiration for my work, of course, uh, from my roots in India and uh, especially in its folk art forms and the vibrant colours of the saris and all the textile traditions which I've been painting about. Uh, and um, I'm really proud of the textile inheritance um, that I have in terms of handloom saris and uh, block printed cloth and uh, patterns that um, they form, visual forms when I, whenever I visit. I come back really excited with all the vibrancy that I experience. So I try to bring them to my work. Um, sari is actually a, just an unstitched uh, cloth which is draped around the body and uh, I've grown up with the narratives of really fine saris around muslins being able to fit in a matchbox to the silks woven with gold thread and um, I often think about how they were repurposed and reused and of course Kanta is one form where they were reused to make quilts and I have seen uh, my mother, grandmothers, you know, remaking quilts using old saris, keeping cottons, old cottons to make babies' clothes and and uh, nappies. So I, I'm quite attracted and drawn to the, all the traditions around it as well. But more recently, um, I've been also exploring um, the history aspect of this Indian textiles, especially during British colonial times. Uh, so this led me into research into chintz fabric um, and it's actually rooted in a textile called kalamkari which is hand-drawn and naturally dyed, uh, dyed with natural pigments and I'm looking at the history, the process, the materials and this work is at the moment supported by Arts Council of England. Can you tell me about your commission for the Lancashire Textile Gallery? I'm really excited uh, to be working with Lancashire Textile uh, Gallery and uh, this commission is the right uh, step in the direction uh, for me and for my work. Um, I've been studying um, the impact of Indian textiles, especially chintzes and, and the patterns and the designs as well. I understand that Lancashire is the very significant part of cotton industry and, it's, uh, and it had global impact as well.
And uh, I understood as well that this uh, would be a great opportunity for me to explore how uh, the histories of Indian textiles and the British textiles are linked as well. Um, so that is the area mainly I'm, uh, I'm uh, seeking to explore through this commission. As part of the commission, you visited Queen Street Mill. I'd love to hear what you saw when you were there. Part of the commission, I have visited Queen, Queen Street Mill and it was um, really exciting to uh, see the mill uh, because it's as if I'm traveling in space to a time. It's like a time capsule, if you know what I mean. And it's of huge significance um, in the sense that I understand um, the history of handloom cloth in India and it's linked to uh, to Lancashire textiles generally as well. And um, when I visited there, I actually sat at a handloom and tried to weave a little bit. And uh, it connected me, uh, you know, to that part of history when the knowledge of handloom and the work of the hand transferred to machines as well. So in some ways, I think the a mill itself captures that transfer from hand to machine and the machines I felt were beautifully crafted and there was a sense of celebration about the machines as well of this transfer from the handloom to being to the mills and the machines and the factory ways of production. And I've heard about the stories of people who are working in the looms and how it affected their health and also we get a sense of people who've been moved um, you know across continents uh, for the sake of this uh, of this industry of making cotton uh, while visiting the space it's amazing you talk about it so beautifully and you also visited Howarth art gallery as well what did you see when you were there yes i did visit Howarth and um, and uh, I stumbled into the history of printing, um, which I was really excited about. Sacklington is the center of textile printing. Once the, from my understanding, once the um, uh, the weaving and the uh, has come about, and that's the next stage of printing as well. You know, I won't go through the whole history of uh, chins again, but um, there was a need for printing as well as the chins were banned. And uh, and I um, I visited, apart from Howard, I also visited a Gothorp textile collection where I saw this beautiful pleated skirt, uh, very feminine. And I was trying to imagine, you know, how people wanted this textile and obviously it is banned so i guess um uh, you know from what i understood so far uh, the printing industry evolved to kind of feed into the need for co printed cottons you know similar to chins so i'm actually exploring that at the moment and i'm also responding to this history in my work um, and uh, I was excited to find wooden blocks, which is the earliest form of printing that existed uh, in Lancashire. So this kind of links it back to Indian history as well with textiles and block printing. And uh, taking it forward, next step obviously was the roller printing that happened pretty soon after that. I was really excited to find these uh, connections and links between uh, textile histories and and processes between India and Britain and Lancashire specifically. And could you talk me through your process for creating the work that you're going to create? 
it's you're doing this incredibly intensive research phase and then what's next um <laughs> i think uh next obviously i'm still in the in the process uh of uh taking in all this and and how do you know capturing my responses and working with uh with it um so i brought um calico from uh the queen street mill and i'm hoping to use that in my project um and i've also taken some of the impressions from the wood blocks from um Howarth as well and i'm working actually a block maker with a block maker in india who make blocks traditionally by hand carving them uh hoping to um create something um with them as they come back to me as well um so in the meantime uh, i'm exploring the histories and i hope to write something about it and being able to share it digitally as well um, um the block printing i haven't spoken about is one of the um, uh, inspirations that i've used as one of my projects i was commissioned to work with um, a refugee community in peterborough so um, i've drawn on the block printing tradition to co-create textiles with a group of uh, volunteers and uh, people who use cafe at parka which is asylum and refugee community community center and uh, so we co-created block printed um runners and um, tea towels that they can use um they can use for celebrations and other purposes as they suit them and um so that's how i started to explore block printing within my within my practice as a way to co-create as well um so i'm really excited to be able to use these blocks as part of my work and also the explore the possibility of co-creation do you have any idea as yet of how the final piece is going to look what kind of form it's going to take mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i mean i think you know that's always difficult as i'm in the process you know i think having visited the Lancashire mills, having immersed myself in the cloth cultures there, the history, the shared histories, and these play a really uh, big part in my work and in my eventual outcomes as well. Um, I think, I mean, I'd love to engage local community in co-creation, um, using the blocks, using the cloth from the Queen Street mill as well. Um, so the outcome won't be just of me as one person, but hopefully as a group that we can create something together, exploring the history, uh, shared histories, methods of creation, and make something beautiful, hopefully, eventually. Uh, and I'm hoping to work um, in Queen Street Mill to create the work. And I'm also inspired by a certain block from Howard, which is actually a wooden block, but it has image of a roller printing, printing a calico and a person standing there. And that's kind of a nice take, um, I think, between, uh, you know, the industrialization of the process and there is the wood block that kind of alludes to this uh, industry and the wood block being basically inspired and rooted in the Indian tradition as well. So I'm, I'm thinking of all of these uh, at the moment. 
You can head to LancashireTextileGallery.com for a changing programme of collections, exhibitions and artist commissions, including more information about the print works, dye and sample books, and Madhu Mani Petruni's commissioned artwork. The Lancashire Textile Gallery is a collaboration between Gawthorpe Textiles Collection, the University of Central Lancashire, and the British Textile Biennial, with contributions from museums and archives across the county. The British Textile Biennial 2023 runs from the 29th of September to the 29th of October, exploring the environmental impact and regenerative potential of textiles and fashion. You can find out more on Twitter, at Textile Biennial, and Facebook and Instagram, at British Textile Biennial. See you next time.